Now our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and this is found on page 807 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, please take this one home with you because it is our gift to you. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, let me add my, my greetings to, uh, to Mickey's as well. Um, they won't be nearly as amazing as that, but we're so glad that you're here this morning. And thanks, especially if this is your first time or you're newer with us. I know walking into a new church or any church for the first time often is an easy thing uh, to do. And so thanks for, for doing that this morning. And hopefully you do feel welcome and, uh, and warm in this, this place this morning as we uh, look at this passage of Scripture that Mickey read for us. I want to begin um, just by offering prayer and asking God to help us to understand it. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have um, revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've preserved your word for us, and that we are able um, to encounter you in your word. Um, that these are not merely um, characters printed on a page, but that they're, it's living and active and you're speaking to us through them. And so I pray that that would be the case now as we reflect on um, this passage in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Christmas and it's just about a week there uh, till we begin opening presents and, and all uh, of that. And uh, so if, I don't know if any of you did this when you were growing up, but if you have the, the paper loop chains, there's just a few more days to tear off until Christmas time comes. And one of my favorite things about Christmas is how, how it really brings out the best uh, in all of us and, and helps us to come together in sort of peace and love. So just take a look here. Folks, uh, you know, we're just past Halloween, which means we're about to enter the magical season of getting angry that there's not enough talk about Christmas. <laughs> Jim? Starbucks is stirring up controversy over its plain red cups for the holiday season. Some evangelical Christians are very upset that the coffee giant is doing away with symbols of the season, like the snowflakes, the snowmen, and the other kind of ornaments. Yes, they got rid of the Christian religious symbols like snowflakes and snowmen. <laughs> I mean, I think we all remember the story of when baby Jesus was visited by the three wise Frosties. <laughs> and I can see why people might be all frothed up about this. Now Starbucks is completely devoid of any trace of the holiday besides the Christmas tree ornaments, advent calendars, CDs of Christmas music, Christmas-themed gift cards, Christmas cookies, and giant displays of their Christmas blend coffee. <laughs> And right, we, we laugh at how ridiculous this is because, because it is ridiculous. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Christmas has always been polarizing. Um, now, historically, it hasn't been because of coffee cups. But Jesus and what he has come to do has always been polarizing. Jesus has been polarizing from the very beginning and, and in every day, decade, and century since and today, around the world, in places like Iran and Syria and China, North Korea, Northern Kenya, following Jesus is polarizing enough that it can land you in prison or worse. 
And we've been in this series called For All People, looking at God's plan to rescue a people from himself or for himself from every language group and ethnic background and, and country of origin. And we started by looking at the, the bookends of this story in Genesis and then in Revelation, the first and last books of the Bible, because this is a theme that runs the entire storyline of Scripture from the very beginning all the way to the end. And as we've begun our series in Matthew here in Advent, we've been looking at where all of these themes come into sharp focus in the person of Jesus, a man born to be a king for all people. And what we find in Matthew chapter 2 are the first reactions to Jesus' birth that, that Matthew records for us. And the reactions couldn't be more different. Because Christmas is either the worst day or the best day. Christmas is either the worst day or the best day. And this morning we're going to just take our time walking through this story. And for most of us, I don't think it's the story that we think it is. And we'll wrap up with a few observations at the end. So pull out one of the pew Bibles or pull up your phone and look at Matthew chapter 2 as the story that we find of the most unlikely worshipers. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The Bible is divided up into two big chunks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is the first book of the Old Testament. So as you turn to Matthew chapter 2, I need to point out that this chapter contains some pretty sort of crazy supernatural stuff. You've got some dreams, um, stars doing things that are odd, um, but it's placed and presented to us in, in a deep historical reality. And I know that those of you who are here this morning who are newer to faith, or, or maybe you're, you're not even a Christian, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you just came with a friend or a family member today. Um, these kinds of chapters in the Bible can be hard to wrap your mind around because of all these things, the stars, the dreams, these confusing references to the Old Testament. But as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to keep in mind that, that, and this might be a big if for you, but if God does exist, if he really does exist, if he actually made everyone and everything, then what we mean by supernatural is simply that, that God is working in his world from outside of it. So the account that we find here in Matthew chapter 2 opens by introducing us to a group of characters called the wise men or the magi. And they're one of the most common features in any nativity scene, right? Joseph, Mary, baby Jesus in the manger, the shepherds, animals looking on, and then, of course, the three wise men. Except those nativity scenes sort of get the story a bit wrong. First of all, there's probably more than three of the wise men. We don't, we're not told in the text how many wise men there were. We get the number three uh, because of the number of gifts they brought, gold, frankincense, myrrh, three gifts. But also, they, by all likelihood, were not there on the night of Jesus' birth. In fact, it was probably much as two years had passed since Jesus was born when the Magi, the wise men, arrive. And we don't know a lot about them. Uh, we know that they are sort of these ancient scholars, astrologers who, who came from the East. And these men had given their lives to studying ancient wisdom texts and observing the natural phenomenon of the world, the cycles of the moon and the planets and the stars and constellations. And they searched these texts and these natural phenomena trying to discern meaning and interpret what they saw. And they were probably from a part of, of the world which used to be part of the Babylonian Empire. And they probably knew something about old Jewish wisdom texts. You see, the Babylonians had, had conquered Israel hundreds of years before this and had deported a bunch of Jews back to Babylon along with some of their religious texts and traditions. 
And as they studied and as they observed and as they tried to make sense and meaning out of what they saw, something happened. Something that would change their lives forever. Something that would prompt them to to pack up their texts and tools and calendars and make an 800-mile journey to that little backwater province of Rome that Babylon had conquered all those years before. And what was it that caused this change? A star. Or was it a star? They weren't exactly sure, and and neither are we, by the way. There are lots of different theories about what they saw, like a comet, a supernova, some kind of supernatural phenomenon like an angel or a pillar of light. But what they were sure of was that they had to follow this phenomenon, whatever it was, to wherever it took them. And they did, all the way to that backwater, many times conquered, currently ruled by Rome, under the authority of Herod, province of Judea. And as their caravan arrives, they make their way straight for the capital, Jerusalem, and they seek an audience with King Herod, the ruler. Now, a quick word on King Herod. He's actually someone we know quite a bit about from history. And let's just say he was a classic brilliant, who's incredible building projects, incredible political operative, but, but always sort of ultra paranoid and political operator who never encountered a problem that couldn't ultimately be remedied by removing someone's head from their shoulders. And Herod was king of Judea, yes, under the authority of Rome, but, but he was king, and, and he liked it that way. And so when a band of scholars show up at his door asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? A dozen thoughts, none of them warm and fuzzy, fire through his mind. How dare they? What do they mean he was born king of the Jews? They're looking right at him. I'm the king of the Jews. They're dead for even suggesting to me that there's a... But wait, maybe, maybe they do know something. What if there is someone else? Okay, Herod, stay calm. You've handled these situations before. Be smart. Don't let on that you're bothered. Not yet. You can use these wise men to find out what this is all about. Put an end to this nonsense about a king of the Jews. And Herod tells the wise men, he isn't sure about this king born of the Jews, at least not yet, but but he'll get his best people on it. And so once the wise men are ushered out of the room, the composed facade that Herod had fades away. You can imagine again, he's saying, what was that? Get me the chief priests and the scripture scholars now. What do these wise men know that I don't? Where was this Messiah supposed to be born? Despite the demands of secrecy, a rumor must have slipped out in the palace through the streets of Jerusalem that Herod is fuming and terrified. And then Jerusalem was terrified too. Because as much as some of the people in Jerusalem disliked Herod, and a lot of them did, they kind of had a motto that happy Herod, happy life. Because when Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy. And everyone was afraid. The report from the priests and the scripture scholars wasn't exactly what Herod was hoping for. 
The pattern of the prophets indicated that Bethlehem, a little village about six miles to the south of Jerusalem, was the place that the Messiah would be born. And so we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them from Bethlehem, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him too. And after they listened to the king, they went on their way. And so the Magi left that evening, and they followed the star or whatever it was another six miles, six miles south. They, they had already come 800 miles, so another six was nothing. They were static. Finally, after so long, they were so close. And when they arrived at the house, they paused and just took it in for a moment. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't much. It was Nothing compared to the palace they had just left in Jerusalem. But their star GPS hadn't been wrong yet. So we read in verse 10, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These unlikely worshippers from the east give gifts to a baby they believe is a great king. And I wonder what they thought when they saw him. I wonder if they ever heard about his teaching later on in their lives. Did they ever hear the Sermon on the Mount? Did they ever read it written down? Did they ever hear that he was eventually arrested by Rome and executed and then there were these stories that he had risen from the dead three days later? I wonder, I wonder what they thought. I wonder if they ever knew any of the rest of the story. And we don't know. And part of the reason why is because they can't stay for long. They have a dream because, again, dreams are really important in these early chapters of Matthew. They have a dream, and the dream warns them of Herod's evil intentions. And so they go back a different way. No stop in Jerusalem this time. And when the Magi leave, Joseph also has a dream that warns him to flee from Bethlehem. It isn't safe. They must flee to Egypt until Herod dies. Their lives are in danger because government forces are set on destroying them. In other words, Jesus and his family end up as refugees in Egypt. And here again, Matthew points to another Old Testament prophecy. He says in verse 15, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And in doing this, Matthew is showing that Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is both the deliverer of Israel. He's Moses. Again, if you know part of the story of the Old Testament, that story of Exodus, of Moses leading God's people out of Egypt, this is the saving moment in history. And Jesus is both the deliverer, he's the new and better Moses, and he also represents and identifies those who need deliverance, Israel. And so when Jesus leaves Egypt, he marks a new exodus, a new defining moment in God's plan to rescue his people and the whole world. So Jesus and his family fled because Herod is a murderous, paranoid ruler who won't let a little genocide stand in the way of preserving his throne. So we read in verse 16, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, Herod became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And this is the part of the Christmas story that, that doesn't make it into the Christmas pageants, right? And it's easy to understand why. The, the murder of every baby boy in Bethlehem, two and under. And in a village of that size, there were probably at least 10 to 20 baby boys in that age. And this fulfills the words of Jeremiah and mothers weeping. And maybe you're thinking that, that God goes out of his way to save one baby. He sends Joseph a dream. Why couldn't he save them all? And of course he could have, but Matthew knows our biggest problem. Our biggest problem isn't children or our families or even our own lives. Our biggest problem is that we need a Savior. And only Jesus can make sense of this. Only Jesus can save us from the evil in the world. And Matthew concludes this chapter telling us that after Herod dies, Jesus and his family do return, but not to Bethlehem. It's still too dangerous to be that close to Jerusalem, even with Herod dead, because after all, his sons are ruling. And they're not all that less paranoid than their father. And they settle in Nazareth, which Matthew highlights as the fulfillment of another ancient prophecy. Which, again, we should pause here to note, Matthew often mentions prophecy, especially in the first part of Matthew 1 and 2, and, but all throughout his book. And when he does that, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. First, when Matthew mentions prophecy, when he says that Jesus fulfills something, he means that Jesus fits the pattern of what the prophets said the Messiah's coming would be like. They aren't always one-for-one -one precise predictions in the way that we think of predicting something in the future. And second, sometimes Matthew will quote a part of a verse or combine parts of several verses together from the Old Testament. And these small parts are meant to call to mind the whole of what, what uh, the prophets are saying and cause us to reflect back on all that those prophets have said. And so there it is. That's the story of the wise men, the magi. And probably not what, what most of us think when we see a nativity scene. So what does this mean for you, for me? What does it mean for Matthew to include this story in his account of Jesus' life? Why does he consider these moments in Jesus' story so important to include? Why are these ones that he spends so much time highlighting? And I think it's because he's setting up a theme that's going to run all the way through his gospel. And that is that there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. Christmas is either the best day or the worst day. Which leads us to one of two, or leads us to two observations this morning. The first is that Christmas is often missed by those who should see it most. Christmas is missed by those who should see it, which forces me to look hard at myself. Because it, it, I'm in that category of people who should see it. And I'm a pastor. I'm a person who gets paid to, paid to be good. I'm, I'm a religious person, right? <laughs> That's what people think of pastors, religious people. And so surely, if, if anyone should understand what God is doing and belong in his plan, that's pastors, right? They should get it. But the closer you look at the nativity, the first worshipers of Jesus, shepherds, the lowliest uh, of the low, deeply impoverished, maybe a year later, these strange outsiders, these Arab scholars from the East, none whom you'd expect, those people aren't anything like me. The people like me, the religious people of the day, they don't show up. 
And for those of us who have grown up with Christmas or with Jesus, complacent with the stories, forgetful of the promises, and often rejecting the gift, we so easily lose sight of what it's all for, like the religious people in this story. You see, if God has come, if salvation is real, everything changes. This isn't just about warm feelings in December. We miss it because we're distracted or because we don't think we need anything or because it's really hard to believe. We miss it because we don't actually think we need a Savior. It's we who think we see who are often the most blind. And for those who miss it, it's the worst day. Maybe that sounds extreme uh, to you, but Christmas tells us loud and clear how deeply broken and messed up we are as people. God himself has to come to rescue us. That's how bad the situation is, that our attempts to fix ourselves, to maintain control, to carve out happiness, none of it is working on our own. And if we reject him, we reject everything. We reject the only hope that we have. Because for Herod, for the religious leaders, they want nothing to do with Jesus. And I don't want that to be me. I don't want to be someone who's, who's so close to it, who's so familiar with it, that I miss it. And if that describes you the season, slow down, talk about it with friend, family member, the people closest to you. Because Jesus really has come, and it really does change everything. And most importantly, admit that you actually need it, that, that this coming just isn't a story that was recorded in ancient history, but that, that you need saving today, rescue. Both because the world is so broken, but also because we're so broken. Don't miss it because you're too close to it. Second, while Christmas is missed by those who should see, it also belongs to the most unlikely And so this afternoon, if you're at the mall doing some final Christmas shopping or at home, I think a lot of us probably have nativity scenes. If you see them around town in your house, you look at the the nativity scene and look at the magi in that scene, even if they weren't actually there on that night. Really look at them. Imagine all the kinds of people that you don't think could possibly be there one day worshiping the king. Who doesn't fit? Maybe it's a friend or a sibling that you think for sure is, is too far gone for Jesus. Or maybe it's those with a particular lifestyle or political bent or, or maybe another religion or ideology from a place like Babylon. And, and maybe it's you, you see, not fitting with your regrets or with your massive pile of doubts and you're convinced that there's no way that this story is for you. Whoever you don't think could make it in or wouldn't want to make it in or if you're honest would just prefer not to see them there. The story of the Magi, the story of the wise men shows us that's exactly who Jesus came for. These unlikely astrologers from the East were some of the first to come to Christ. And it's not an accident that that Matthew highlights that they're from the East. He makes a big deal out of that. And the idea of the East is a theme that runs through the story of the Bible right from the very beginning. Genesis tells us the Garden of Eden was planted in the East. 
when Adam and Eve are, are banished from the garden after rebelling against God, they're cast out of the garden to the east of Eden. Babylon was built in the east. But there's hope throughout the story that God's rescue and redemption would come from the east, the direction from which the sun rises. The east is a reminder both of what was lost and the hope of rescue to come. The magi from the east seem unlikely to us, but they are just the sort of people who most consistently come to follow Jesus. Be on the lookout for this pattern as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Be watching for this. Because this is a big pattern in Matthew. Who are the most likely Who follows Jesus the most? It's the ones who are the least likely, the irreligious, the unimportant, who have faith and then are transformed and become the most loyal followers of Jesus. Irreligious and unimportant people plus faith equals some of Jesus' most passionate followers. Those who experience the deepest transformation and rescue. See, Christmas really is for everyone. And as global Christianity shifts to places like South America, Africa, China, are we ready for that and willing to celebrate it? And that's the work that our our global partner team is all about here at the Brookside campus. This team has has two big roles. They, They help us focus broadly on what God's doing around the world. And also they coordinate our partnership with the 11th Hour Network, which is a network of leaders and church planters and local churches in northeastern Kenya who are planting churches among predominantly Muslims and people who have no background in church or Christ. Some of the most unlikely just the sort of people who end up loving Jesus the most. Let me just tell you one of their stories. Hussein. I, I first met Hussein uh, in 2008 when I first traveled to Kenya to visit our partners there. And then I got to see him again last fall when we were in Kenya again. And Hussein grew up uh, a Muslim in a, in a Muslim area with no churches, no Christians, having heard nothing about Jesus in his entire life in a remote part of northern Kenya that was dominated by Islam. But one afternoon in the midst of a nap, he has a dream. And I'm, I'm not making this up. I've heard Hussein tell this story multiple times how it's transformed his life. And he had a dream. And in this dream, a guy named Jesus shows up and asks Hussein to follow him. And Hussein does. And he places his trust, his life, in Jesus' hands. And and he he doesn't quite know what this is about, but he's excited. And he goes to his neighbors and he begins to explain to them this dream that he's had and, and trying to figure out what it means. And even as he tells others, he's eventually savagely beaten nearly to death. But he someone who's incredibly unlikely, continues to follow Jesus, continues to this day, even though he's been estranged from all former ties in his life. But you don't have to look far to find the unexpected or the forgotten. I mean, they're in, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in our schools, in our city. Do you see the magi when you look at them? What about refugees? It's such a complex situation, isn't it? And we know that as a church, and so we're hosting an event to help us think biblically, not simply politically or partisanly about them, but biblically about refugees. And it's going to be on February 18th at our downtown campus. I know it's a ways off, but save the day, because we need help thinking well about this, don't we? 
There's also some upcoming opportunities with our partners, Mission Adelante, who works with uh, immigrants from a number of different places, including um, refugees from uh, Bataan. And you can find out more about those opportunities on our website. You see, Christmas belongs to the unlikely. But you know what? That's really who each one of us is. Like Hussein, like the Magi. None of us is, is really the likely. All of us are, are outsiders. I mean, most of us are ethnically outside. Most of us here this morning aren't, aren't Jewish. We weren't part of the Jewish heritage or family. Morally, we, we've blown it. We've messed up. And yet Jesus comes. And you notice how clearly all this was planned by God? All these references to these ancient prophecies and patterns fulfilled by Jesus. And yet it's all leading to one place, a cross and an empty tomb. For that's ultimately what we really need the most. And it's either the best or the worst. And we can be hostile to Jesus, angry. And some of us are. I know maybe you're here visiting with a friend or you're here because mom and dad brought you or you're visiting someone and you weren't super excited about coming to church this morning. Maybe you're just apathetic, just don't care. Uncaring, unbelieving. There's a lot of different responses that we can have to Jesus. The one that he desires most is that we would fall down and worship, giving him the gift that he wants most of all. That's everything, our entire lives, our trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would instill me, each one of us, with a new awe. That we wouldn't fall in the trap of familiarity when it comes to Jesus coming to rescue us. I pray that we would see his glory in fresh ways. That we would never become familiar, that we would never miss it because Either we think that we're too unlikely or that we would look at other people and say they would never come. You've come for all people. We'll be celebrate that in Jesus' name. Amen.